Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Labra. Now, in industrialized countries, we think of the potato as a versatile calorie source. It's a relatively consistent product that we can bake, mash, fry, a lot of different applications as an accompaniment to a meal. Now, there's a lot of good reasons for that. They grow well, they ship well, they store well, and are generally very inexpensive and easy to prepare. But in many parts of the developing world, the potato is not a kettle-fried luxury. It's the foundation of the diet, owing again to its diversity and tolerance to a wide variety of production conditions. So no matter where you grow potatoes, there are some common challenges. Sure, they require lots of water and nitrogen and all that kind of stuff, but perhaps the biggest problem is susceptibility to disease. The famous Irish potato famine was caused by a pathogen, a fungal blight, that still plagues potato farmers to this day, worldwide. Now you can control it with fungicide sprays. That is, if you have access to fungicide sprays. And even if you do, it costs time, money, labor, fuel, and has potential environmental impacts. But what if there was a genetic source of resistance? Certainly wild potato relatives, they do just fine without a lot of help from farmers or fungicides. And could those genes that provide resistance in wild potatoes be identified and then strategically integrated into worldwide potato varieties? Today's guest says yes, and there's evidence that it works in slowing potato late blight. Today's guest is Dr. David Douches. He's a professor in the Department of Plant, Soil, and Microbial Science at Michigan State University. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. Thanks. It's nice to hear from you again. Yeah, nice to have you back on, too. It's, it, it was fun last time, and it was very informative. I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but it was a, it's in the series, if anyone wants to look back, probably about six years ago. But let's talk about potatoes and talk about the new innovations in potato. And when we think about world food staples, I think most people don't think potato. We think about rice or wheat, those kinds of things. But what is the role of the potato in international food security? Well, so for people that really that don't realize is that potato is our number three human food crop. It's, so it is a staple. And, and if you really look at, at the world, potatoes are grown in just about every country. Some countries it's more important than others, but it is grown around the world because of its adaptability and it's also its, its nutritional value. So if we go around the world, what regions or which areas are most dependent on potato as a staple? Well, the, the European countries are considered potato a staple and the U and North American and South American countries, but surprisingly it's becoming more important in our Asian countries and our African countries. And so that, that's the target of our, our work around the world. And with all the diversity in potato, and I've seen those slides from what comes out of the Andes, you know, that kind of thing. 
in, in the places where it is a cornerstone of the diet, is it really just a few different cultivars or are there a lot of land races that are consumed or is it a pretty diverse mix overall or is it really everybody eating the Burbank russet? Well, the Burbank russet is really a North American potato. It's not really taken around the world. I don't think it has the adaptability, but there are a number of varieties that are have worldwide adapt, adapt, adaptation and are grown in a number of countries. But if you start really digging into it, you'll see that there are a few hundred varieties that are grown around the world to feed people. And are those mostly choices based upon, you know, what has been there before, what's socially, or I should say culturally relevant, or are these things that they just happen to grow well there because they deal with the pests and pathogens and soils of that region? Well, it's a combination of a lot of things. The, the different countries have different ways of, or favorites in terms of potato skin color or shape or even flesh color. So you, you have to kind of take that into account. But then there also is the, the diseases and pests and the, and the climate that they face that, that play into it also. Yeah, so what are the biggest threats to potato production in the areas where they're grown? Well, late potato late blight, which is the disease that caused the Irish potato famine, is the disease that's worldwide. It seems like if you grow potatoes, there's a good chance that late blight could be lurking in the shadows. Yeah, and so late blight is a fungal pathogen, or is that uh, bacterial or something like that? No, it's a fungal pathogen. We, we won't get into the nuances of the pathology, but we'll call it a fungus. <laughs> Well, I'm curious about the nuances of the pathology. Is it, I mean, so it's like an oomycete or something? Yes, it's an oomycete. So they call that a, a, what, a water algae? Yeah. So it's kind of that weird borderline between what you might consider a micro, it, it doesn't have some of the fears and morphologies we typically think about with a fungus, right? So it's just kind of a, a single cell free swimming thing like yeah. it, right? It, yeah. it, it's important to clarify that for the audience. So that's, that's really what it is, right? Yeah, and that it, but it behaves like a fungus. If you see it visually, it's going to form a, you know, a fluffy white surface on the on the leaf of the plant, and and that's what most people associate with a lot of fungi. Okay, so this is a really big deal. This was the Irish potato famine. It was other huge losses internationally. So what is how fast does it spread, and what happens when late blight is detected in a given region of potato production? The fungus needs to survive on a potato, a living living part of the crop. So because the tubers can stay in the soil, the the, the disease can linger in in the off season if there's you know live potatoes in the ground somewhere or a pile of potatoes on the somewhere in the corner of a field or something that you know left over as kind of trash. So so it always is there. So if you have the right environment, it's going to come up, it's going to spread into your crop. Yeah, and this seems to be rather devastating, right? When it comes, it, it completely decimates the plant and moves quickly across a field. If, you're, if your conditions are good, like cool, wet conditions, it's, it can kind of come in there and in a couple of weeks, pretty much knock the crop out. Yeah, so how, how do farmers currently control this, both in the industrialized world and in the developing world? So in, in the U.S. and Europe, the farmers will plan to spray their crop with fungus protectant fungicides. So they need to get the fungicide on before 
the disease comes. It's very difficult to control it when the disease is, has taken hold. So you're then just fighting an uphill battle. So you, you have to have those protectant fungicides to stay ahead of the disease. Yeah. So what happens if you don't have protectant fungicides? If you're in the developing world and maybe are dependent upon, or maybe don't have access to such products or maybe, you know, old school products, what do you do? Well, it, it's a complex situation because the, the farmers are dependent on, you know, the, the local community, to, you know, and businesses to supply them with fungicides. And so there's a lot of misinformation on which fungicides will work effectively. So they could be applying the wrong fungicide, or like you said, sometimes they don't have access to the fungicides because of the cost. And so they don't spray and just kind of hope for the best. But the, the, the one aspect that really disturbs me that I see in our target countries where we're working is that a lot of the potato production is done manually. And so what happens is, you know, they're, they're planting manually, they're, they're hilling manually, they're weeding manually, but they're also spraying, you know, walking through the fields with, you know, a, a hand sprayer spraying their fields. And that would be completely unacceptable from our health, health perspective in the U.S. We, we exposing yourself to your, the, the fungicides and even the insecticides they're spraying on a regular basis is not a healthy work environment. Yeah. So if you had a potato, hypothetically, that could protect itself and didn't need sprays, that might be a good thing, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. So we'll pick up with that on the other side of the break. We're speaking with Dr. David Douches. He's a professor at Michigan State University. And we're talking about a USAID-funded project that helps spread biotech potatoes that can protect themselves from this devastating fungus. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast by Calabra, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Calabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Calabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. David Douches. He's a professor in plant, soil, and microbial science department at Michigan State University. And we're talking about potatoes and the world food staple that is constantly under threat of a devastating fungus and a potential new solution that could be beneficial worldwide. So could you tell me a little bit about the project that was funded by USAID and some of the collaborators? Right. Yes. So USAID has developed a cooperative agreement with Michigan State University. So we're the lead institution, but part of our team is the International Potato Center, which is actually housed, essentially located in Peru, but we are working with a, a substation in Nairobi, Kenya. And then other important teams members are University of Minnesota and University of Idaho. Yeah, really good. And and the International Potato Center, have you ever been there? I'm sure you have. I mean, I always wanted to visit that place. It's near Lima? Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, it's a great place to visit. They, they It's a great international center, and they have a, a, 
a world collection of cultivated potatoes down there, which is kind of fun to see. They grow them out each year in the mountains. Yeah, that's, well, that's the center of potato diversity, isn't it? Yeah. So you're actually, uh, the potato center is at the place where, where it all started and really where folks helped to, where people started to domesticate potato for human consumption. So let's talk about the biotech trait. So this is a potato that is resistant to late blight. And so when exactly was this developed? There's been an, a, a large amount of work done over the past 20 years to help us understand more about late blight resistance in potato and actually identify genes that, that confer late blight resistance. And so that's done by different research groups around the world. And so we really have a, a great amount of information. And so now we know there's a number of what we call resistance genes or R genes that contribute to late blight resistance. And with all the work that's gone on, we know that a single R gene confer, can confer resistance but the pathogens a formidable foe and can adapt to that single R gene and overcome the resistance over a, a few cycles of, uh, of growing in the field. So it's better if we can actually stack multiple R genes and keep the, the pathogen off balance. And so the current research shows that if we have at least three R genes, we can really keep the pathogen at bay. Yeah, that makes sense. So the chances of it evolving resistance to one in this constant arms race is is there. I mean, it's it's you know maybe ninety nine point nine 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 percent. But when you're a rapidly evolving fungus, it's possible to work around a plant defense. But to do that with three genes is infinitesimally unlikely. Cool. So so this is really good. But where do these genes that confer resistance come from? Well, the being a potato breeder at Michigan State, I've had the, the luck of working with a crop that has a, a pool of wild species. And these wild species are the sources of these resistance genes. And so a, a number of those species contribute. And, and so we can actually, in some cases, cross those in and get the resistance genes in, but it takes many cycles of selection to, to get a single gene in. But, um, and then some of them are difficult to cross in, so that, that becomes a problem. So they've been cloned out by different research groups, and so they're available to actually stack using biotechnology. Yeah, maybe you could give me a little taste of how challenging it is to be a potato breeder. So you have a couple of problems. It's polyploid, right? It's, uh, it's a tetraploid, and then it's got uh, the wild species aren't always flowering at the same time, and then they don't necessarily have very good tuber traits. So, so you're trying to get all of the good traits in one place. How hard is that to do, especially if you're trying to stack genes? Well, so there was a resistance gene identified in a wild species called Solanum bulbocastanum, and they, um, the group took the, that plant and they had to create a protoplast fusion with the cultivated potato. Then they had to back cross it a couple of times to kind of get it looking like a potato. And then as breeders, we've been trying for 20 years to select potatoes that have that resistance gene and have good commercial traits that donors want. And we still haven't gotten there. Yeah, that's And so just to clarify for the folks who are listening who may not know protoplast fusion, this is where you actually dissolve away the cell wall of, of cells in culture. And then you use a couple techniques to force together the two naked cells that don't have cell walls just by the membranes. 
and the nuclei combine. And so you get these polyploids that are really synthetic laboratory polyploids that now contain the traits of both. And then you have to kind of peel that onion back to, or peel that potato back to something that is reproductively compatible with commercial potato and hopefully be able to get good tuber traits. And so that's really difficult. You, you can develop resistant potatoes, you know, for the industry, but if they don't have the market traits that the farmers can have, need to sell their varieties, it, it doesn't have any value. And so there's one example over in Europe where they, they bred in two R genes for late blight resistance, and it took them 46 years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a lot like the story with the, with the apple bringing in fire blight resistance or sca apple scab resistance. It yeah. just took a long time. So technically speaking, are these potatoes transgenic, cisgenic, or intragenic? So um, I would say that these potatoes are cisgenic because we're taking the native genes from these wild potato species and just putting them in our gene construct and inserting them into the potato. So there's no foreign DNA being used. Yeah, so this is almost like if you could breed in just that one gene without its genetic neighborhood, which could contain deleterious traits, being able to surgically move the one gene that confers the resistance. Right, right. Okay, so when we put these things in the field, what happens to the to the plants? I mean, are they really resistant? Oh, it's 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 black and white. It's so so we, we've run field trials here in Michigan, and we've actually run field trials in our target countries. We haven't even talked about our target countries yet. But when you grow them in the field and you have border rows that are susceptible, you, have, you can have complete kill of your border rows that are susceptible, and our potatoes then stay there healthy green and bite off the fungus like it's not even present. Well, let's talk about those target countries. So where are these innovations really destined to perform best? So our target countries are Bangladesh, Indonesia in Southeast Asia, and then Kenya and Nigeria in Africa. And those are countries that, you know, just, just to my ignorance, don't necessarily seem to be centers of potato consumption. But is, so are these, are these new introductions? Or are you actually engineering their traditional lines that maybe are cultivated on some scale? Well, it's in interesting in that when I tell, talk to people about Bangladesh, Bangladesh is the seventh largest potato producing country in the world. Huh. <laughs> and, and they need to feed 100, over 160 million people on their land. And so potato is their winter crop that they grow as part of their crop rotation. And uh, that gives them a... A, a food staple. And Nigeria is actually a large potato producing country in, in Africa. And, and Kenya, I've, I've been told, has 800,000 potato farmers. Wow, 800,000 potato farmers. That's small, 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 small farmers growing, you know, an, an acre of potatoes. <laughs> well, so something like this kind of innovation is the difference between a successful season and, and a complete bust. Yeah, yeah, I think that can happen. So we're, we're really feeling that in Nigeria and Kenya that there's a strong interest because they, they consistently have late blight each year. Same, same in Indonesia. It's just that potato is of the four countries, that one's where potatoes just a smaller part of their diet. 
And so you know, maybe another question about the pathogen. So is this thing just ubiquitous and maybe have some other host, but really does key in on potatoes when they show up? Oh, yeah. So I'm trying, trying to think about other hosts, but as I said, it kind of, you know, lives on, on potato, potato tissue. So as long as you have potato, you know, potatoes around. And so in the tropical environments, they just don't have the winter kill to take things out. So the, the uh, pathogen survives. And so in Indonesia, when the potatoes emerge from the field in that tropical environment, the late blight is already attacking the plant. Whereas in the U.S., if we're growing potatoes, it's like mid-season that we'll start worrying about whether the pathogen can make it there. I see. So in these different countries, when you talk about Indonesia versus Nigeria, these are really different culturally, or really different places culturally. Right. And are they in the same potato or are they in a local variety of potato that has always been acceptable to the culinary interests of the people that are there? So the potatoes that we've inserted our, our genes into are what we would call farmer preferred varieties. So those are varieties that, um, the people that the farmers want to grow and the people want to eat. And so there are different varieties for different countries. Yeah, that's really interesting. And then once they're in there, can they then be just crossed into other lines by traditional breeding? Correct. Yeah, that, that's possible. But it, if you really study potatoes and, and, their, um, and, and changes in varieties, it's, it's a slow process because the, that they really get, how would you say it, adapted to growing a certain variety. Yeah, you have to learn how to grow a variety and the consumers like, like the certain tastes and culinary qualities of a variety. So you're, you're fighting change, you know, you know, or, or the lack of change the, the, the consumers want a certain potato that looks a certain way, tastes a certain way, cooks away. And the farmers want something that they know how to grow productively. So it change can be hard. And so by inserting genes into their preferred varieties is a good strategy in my opinion. Yeah, really good. I, I, I guess the other question always that comes up is. How is this regulated or tested before it is distributed to farmers in the developing world? Well, so the, our target countries are somewhat defined by countries that are accepting of biotech crops. And so the country has a regulatory framework in place for us to present our data to show that the potato is, you know, safe to eat and safe to grow in the environment. And, and so. Those are the countries we, we try to work in. I see. So a lot of countries, and maybe this isn't well known, is a lot of countries in the developing world don't even have a regulatory framework to begin the regulation or deregulation of a given biotech innovation in their country. And so that's like, so Kenya is a great example of one that does. Their neighbor to the south, Uganda, doesn't. And right. so it makes it almost impossible to be able to deliver new solutions for those populations. Yeah. And so we're hoping that Uganda and Rwanda will also come on board because being border countries and they also are potato countries that we could consider potatoes for them also. So you mentioned this three gene construct that gives three different R genes with a very small likelihood of there being resistance. But is there another set of solutions in the pipeline? Well, we, we have to stay ahead of the, the pathogen. And so what we, we, we've done for the, our next generation of transformations is 
constructed a new gene construct that has a different set of R genes. Plus, we've also added an R gene for virus resistance on top of that to make them even more sustainable. Wow, that's really clever. And are any other traits that have been used in biotech potatoes maybe making their way into your versions as well, like the asparagine synthase suppression or maybe genes that help the potatoes store better? Well, not for our USAID project. We've been doing work at MSU on that, but we, our next step is if everything goes right is, is to add in genes for bacterial wilt resistance. In the tropical countries, the bacterial wilt is, is, is really a large problem. And so if we can stack the late blight resistance, virus resistance and bacterial wilt, I think the farmers would be really happy. It would, it would, I think, give them that food security that's needed in these developing countries. Oh, very nice. And then with the wilt resistance, is that just the gene from pepper that fights against anthemonis? There is a set of genes. It's for us to get a more durable bacterial wilt, we're testing a combination of genes. And, and in, hopefully in another year, we'll have a better sense if, if that's working to the level that we want. Very cool. So if, if listeners wanted to learn more about the project on social media or on the web, where would they look? Well, you can follow our project on Twitter and it's biotech at FTF potato PJT. Try to remember that. Or you can go to Facebook and feed the future global biotech potato partnership. And we also have a website at Michigan State University, which is C-A-N-R, which is our college, dot M-S-U dot E-D-U slash biotech P-P. Very good. Well, this is super exciting. I, I love this project. I'm so glad you took the time to talk to us. So Dr. David Douches, could you keep me posted about future developments and please join me again when there's results from this thing in the field that are really showing how well it's working? Oh yeah. And uh, yeah, we're really happy because we have the successful tests in all four of our target countries ongoing right now. So this is a quite exciting time for, for our team, but my, personally for myself of being able to help uh, countries around the world. Very good. And so thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Biotech Podcast by Calabra. Please write reviews on iTunes and share with friends, especially the stories of how biotech traits are helping to make more sustainable agriculture worldwide, especially those that can protect and assist the food insecure, and especially farmers in the developing world that are oftentimes working without the same tools that they have in the West. So thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.